Welcome to the Meltzone podcast from July 14th, 2019. This is episode 18 and I'm Tom. And I'm Stefan. And on today's episode, Tom will talk about his recent trip to pa Prague Maker Fair and how he really enjoyed the spirit of all of the makers around there. He was also experimenting in the last couple of days in topology optimization and how he could use like um, generative design in order to create uh, really nicely looking shelf brackets. I just received this week a kind of expensive 3D scanner I have for my disposal for the next couple of weeks and where I want to make some uh, yeah, really nice projects with it as long as I have it. And I just started with a filament test again and I talk a little bit about the experience I had in terms of how is the strength of the layers or how is layer adhesion affected by part cooling and temperature. In the news section today, we talk about puppies because that's kind of the hot topic in the 3D printing community today. <laughs> uh, also, why have resin printers become so popular? We've been seeing a lot of the Elegoo Mars, uh, the formerly RapRap Pro resin machine um, just used by people everywhere. You, it, it looks like Twitter is blowing up uh, just on that one single resin printer because it's cheap. It's really cheap and accessible. And also in something that, that we both think is kind of really cool, um, printing on diffraction grating uh, sheet. So yeah, that's that's a really in interesting effect that you can achieve with that. That's something that um, David Shorey is doing. And for the topic of the week, uh, the Edelkrone head, the 3D print at home augmented with nicely machined parts. Is it actually something that is just a marketing stunt or, you know, maybe other manufacturers could pick up on it and use for their own portfolio. All right. Ah, we're back. We're Stefan, well, well, it's been a while. It feels weird. Yeah, it feels really weird. We, we haven't been properly talking for the last five or six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll the, make it for Prague in, in the mm, middle there. So the, the last podcast was already like, I think one week delayed. And then you did it with, Joel and Joe at Prague Maker Fair, which was really yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah, it was great hanging out with those folks. Yeah, and of oh. course, you know, so Prague Maker Fair. I, I guess we we can we should add that to our topics to discuss. But that's that's been a really nice Maker Fair. Yeah, um, I did mention that in, in that yeah. episode, but it's it's it was eye opening. Yeah, having kids there and having uh, you know everyone just involved. Really, yeah. really nice. I really envied you being there uh, or well I was kind of upset that I wasn't there because also for me it would just have been like a five hour car ride something like that I mean you, you would have driven straight past and we could have gone together yeah and you, you would have you know you, you, your alarm in the morning would have been at like 4 a.m but uh well um in my case i think i wouldn't have done it in just one day because okay. i guess for you it was also really busy it was actually it was actually pretty good. Um, the Maker Fair itself isn't that big, where you actually need to spend two days. Mm. Like you've you've seen pretty much everything in a day. Mm. Um, of course, if you if you add stuff like a factory tour at Prusa or you know a podcast recording mm. or that sort of stuff, it it does get busy. But for me, it was actually super relaxed in, in a day. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. I've well, I've never been to the 
Prusa headquarter and they've been growing oh. just tremendously and ah yeah I need to go there at some point and just take a look at the factory it's it's, it's just impressive, impressive to see yeah <laughs> yeah have you seen uh, Joel's factory tour yeah I have seen it was really nice um and would also really i really enjoyed watch watching the latest prusa 3d video where well not it was it wasn't the latest but where they talked the about documentary the history yeah the documentary yeah. about prusa it was oh, it was so impressive to see where two guys started in like their dorm room or something like that and just five years later they have a company with 400 employees how many employees do they, do they have many very many, many but 400 employees. 400 plus that's yeah. i think that's pretty accurate yeah. yeah that they were at the right place in the right time with the right mindset and mm. just worked out it's really interesting yeah. to see like this tweet which maybe started it all where joseph prusha said okay should i buy one of these like <laughs> uh, i don't know uh, uh tablets for making music or should i buy a 3d printer yeah, maybe if somebody else would have read that as at first and convinced him to buy one of these music tablets, Prusha wouldn't be a, be around, and maybe yeah, we, I wouldn't we, be. Here. Our lives would be different. It would Definitely. be different. It's really, really interesting. <laughs> I don't know if, if if anyone else would have stepped up and and taken the place that Prusha is in. But... Yeah, maybe, but they really gave the well the whole community and the whole thing around three D printing such a boost. Even though I think like Creality and all of the other Chinese manufacturer, Chinese manufacturers, they are selling way more three D printers. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, Prusa is the one that made it simpler, and they invest a lot in researching of the technology. So lots of the things we see in like current Chinese three D printers was kind of out of their research lab. Research lab. Yeah, I mean, pretty much all the printers you can buy, including the Creality's, are kind of based off the Prusa i3. Yeah. Still. Yeah. Uh, all right. But, you know, we, we, we tend to, you know, uh, derail into these Prusa yeah. praise runs here. <laughs> but just, just one last okay. question. Uh, you talked yeah. about all of the kids being there. So how, yeah. how did you feel... Is the Prague Maker Fair different to other Maker Fairs where you have already been? So, okay, what can I compare it to? I can compare it, of course, to the 3D printing shows, the actual, you know, Fabcons, et cetera, which are trade shows. I mean, those are totally different. The Make Munich, yeah. um, the, the local one here, is kind of a big mix of both. Um, but it's it's actually more of a trade show than a than a maker fair the the big one in san francisco bay area which you know may not ever happen again um i think that that was that was also more of a trade show than the the Prague maker fair mm. so it was a really hands-on really you know almost every booth had something where you could get involved where you could just you know as a kid uh or, or joel pointed out he had like this little blown glass vial or whatever that was <laughs> his crack pipe <laughs> <laughs> yeah his his microbong um it, you know you, you could do stuff like that yeah. Pusha had like a huge thing where kids could make um the the, the pinewood derby cars oh, basically yes. with 3d printed cars uh 3d printed parts and all that mm. there were like small robots 
arenas. There were stuff, you know, the, those those two wheels of death, those fire spitting ones. Mm. Um, you don't see the in, in the why you make video, you don't yeah. really see the fire. But you know, everything was like full of of people and full of people making things. Mm. And I think that that's something that I've not seen on any other show mm. to that extent. Okay, where. Yet you really see the spirit of making and not just yeah. companies showing off their products want to sell something you see oh are you still there oh, uh I'm, I'm i can i can still hear you. <laughs> yeah sorry uh, i think my headphones are currently running out of juice just okay. give me one second <laughs> hello always check your gear before you start <laughs> yeah Damn those it. kids with their fancy stuff <laughs> Okay, so so as a recommendation, if you guys are living ne next to Prague, people should go there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, in general, the 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 Czech folks they do speak and understand English pretty well. I think okay. they're just really shy talking. That's that's been my experience, um, especially when you, when you you know shove a camera in their face. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the Prague Maker Fair has always been one that I, I I don't bring home any interviews or any any content. Mm. Um, that is actually interviewing and talking to people but you know as a visitor you can you can get along pretty well cool. even if you don't you know if you're not a native czech speaker yeah <laughs> cool pretty nice so i have seen a tweet from you yesterday where you did yes. some topology optimization yeah all inspired by by your videos actually um, otherwise i probably wouldn't even know that stuff exists and it was like <laughs> Where do I find this? Oh, you click into simulation. So I worked my way through your, your guide and okay. I created some uh, topology optimized designs. So these are shelf hinges because I, I need I need to hang some shelves. Um, basically with the constraint, okay, this base shape, you can, can kind of see what the original mm. uh, shape is supposed to be there. And then there's a 35 kilograms, so 350 Newton um load on here and these two holes are fixed which of course isn't like totally accurate but yeah that first try second try um slightly different slightly different look i mean mm. these all probably work it's just about you know which one looks the coolest <laughs> um with with an additional constraint that the back here is actually a sliding mate mm. so i thought that that would help it like rest and push itself against the wall um so i think that that one actually looks pretty cool and they're yeah. all quite printable i printed these like that so mm -hmm. they, they're probably going to crack right there <laughs> um, but we'll see i'll break these these are 50 percent scale okay and then i did another one and this is i think the same sorry same parameters as this first one um but this one is like a much higher resolution model so same settings same everything you can see kind of the same trough mm. uh they they created back here but like thick branches up here thinner branches and this is actually a bifurcated design where there's this front part is hollow mm -hmm. and there's two sidewalls this, this stuff actually looks super cool mm. um i gotta say you know the you, you see the models they look super rough and janky and all but once you actually print them they're like this alien yeah. technology stuff I, I i really like the look organic structures yeah this was yeah. the question i got a couple of times on on my video why did you well, take the effort and redesign this, uh, the result from the topology optimization. And yeah, that, that's always the question. Um, they look pretty cool, but I think they're just not always optimal to print uh, because you don't really take any, um, 
manufacturing constraints into consideration. Yeah, yeah. So again, these are going to sit like that on the wall, but I had to print them like mm. this because then the, the overhangs kind of yeah. work out. I originally wanted to print them like that, flat against the, the table, mm. but of course I'd have to you know fill all mm. this stuff with supports and then peel it out between the arms. And that's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, now in Fusion 360, in the paid professional version, there, there are two types of generating shapes like mm -hmm. or, or designs like this. There's the topology optimization, where you start with a block of material, mm -hmm. and then it, it, it removes everything that it doesn't think it needs. Or that's that's the topology optimization. Or you have actual generative design, where you start with you know just the mounting points and the surface where it contacts other stuff, and then you tell, okay, do your thing, create some features, create some geometry. And well, there you can actually tell it, okay, I'm going to machine this on you know, a, a subtractive mm. milling process. I'm going to do this with molding. I'm going to do 3D printing <clears throat> like that. Please account for overhangs. And, mm. and there you can actually set it, okay, maximum overhang angle, 45 degrees. And I think that would be a better process for this, but it's not included in the enthusiast license for Fusion. So I don't have access to it, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh pretty sad. I also really wanted to try the generative design and fusion, but I also don't have access to it at the moment. Um, still, the actually, I think the main difference between the generative design and the structural optimization, as uh, you also did it in fusion, is that it's just a little bit more advanced, but you still have to design your design space and your non-design space and you add yeah. to your, your constraints. But setting up different uh, load cases setting up different parameters including manufacturing constraints that is also uh, that is everything which is included in the generative design suite and that is pretty um, interesting and topology optimization and generative design uh, has been hyped over the last couple of years especially with uh, 3d printing becoming more and more common but as I also tried to point it out in my video it's not always the perfect solution because you literally say like don't print the geometry that it generates <laughs> and these these are literally yeah. the the geometry yeah. that comes straight out of well okay there's a small fix back here because this is such a low resolution model that this one arm mm. kind of didn't didn't like materialize mm. it was like two vertices so yeah. for artistic purposes i think it's great and this oh, yeah, this sure. looks so cool on on a wall but <laughs> in terms of being well in terms of that it really makes sense in a mechanical point of view if you take into consideration uh material anisotropy so that material behaves different yes. in different printing directions and things like these it's just not really that perfect but it is a good mm, it gives you a good idea how you could design your structure and you should take that idea and then uh, think about how you could design it in a maybe even better way. But yeah, like what, what you see with both of these is, okay, apparently this piece of material right yeah. here against the wall is not needed. Mm. Like it's not doing anything for structure. Yeah. You need kind of a, a cross brace yeah. towards the middle of this uh, area. Exactly. Oh, you're not seeing that. Towards this middle. And of course, this up here, it looks like the most, sorry, the, the simplest thing to do is to do like a two-part v-shape mm. that goes from that center beam up yeah. to the surface if of course your low case is correct and this is actually yeah. a, a an even um evenly mm. distributed load on this which of course it's not going to be yeah. because it's it, there's a piece of wood sitting on top yeah. but yeah it's cool if if you want to do that um 
you you've been how how complex of of projects have you been running through that i haven't well in fusion 360 i haven't really done highly complex structures i have been doing highly complex projects in ansys and optistruct and right. the the commercial products at work but fusion is kind of limited um so Yeah, yeah, even <sighs> designing separate load cases, that's sometimes kind of a hassle. And I am currently not really understanding perfectly what's going on in the background. So it makes it hard for me to really interpret yeah. the results properly. So I stayed away a little bit from that. I yeah, was it's a it's a really simple and, and intransparent yeah. kind of process that's happening. Yeah. The the main issue that I've been having is that you know as it's an Autodesk product, it doesn't always complete. It doesn't always work. Yeah. And especially with with this load case where it's where you have mm -hmm. more than a single load, um, I actually tried a, a multi piece mm -hmm. uh, design where there was an actual plank on top here um, that then had the load applied to it, so a rigid plank. Mm -hmm. So you actually get that 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 case. And you know that either never completed. I let the simulation mm. run. It's it's all it's the sim. This simulation runs on the cloud. Mm. It doesn't run locally. I wish it would run locally, but you can't do that. Um, so this one took like I don't know twenty hours. I had it running and it never completed. It's like the progress bar in simulation. It's just at that last ninety mm. percent mark and it never finishes. Um, also, simulations that are you know a higher detail mm. because these are. These are pretty rough. Like you can see the arms are actually really coarse. There's a lot of chunkiness there. Mm. Those tend to not complete. Then I got errors of like the simulation run running out of memory because of, of, of a 32-bit memory limit, I guess. <laughs> Two gigs of, of allocated memory, um, which is a, apparently a, an error from the server side because like I'm sure my computer does have <laughs> enough RAM. Uh, so I really wish it would run locally yeah. because I think my my, my, my video editing rig mm -hmm. could handle that just you know easily and mm -hmm. you'd have more control over it. Mm. I don't know. <clears throat> There are unfortunately not many other free solutions around. There are a couple because actually the process is not too hard in the background, so on the numerical side. But yeah. the implementation is always the problem. And the implementation in Fusion 360 is straightforward. It's just a couple of clicks and you get a model, you get a result in the end, but you can't really control it finely. And if something goes yeah, wrong, usability you, it's hard for side. you to debug. So I've been spending hours in, well, debugging um, outputs from, from commercial optimization programs and i know if something is in there i know what's wrong with the model itself but yeah. right here mm, i always have to guess okay this constraint could make problems or that contact contact could make a problem it's nice for a start it's really cool for for things like these and i've been looking forward to or i thought about really making like a, a quadcopter using this and also maybe right. applying my uh How did how did I say adaptive support structure intelligent su no no uh, intelligent infill adaptive infill thing Oh yeah that, yeah. that one right yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah didn't do that so far I just did not have the time but cool right. it's really cool that you're also it, just it definitely looks cool yeah. like again uh, not sure how practical or realistic even these these results are yeah. uh, in in being suitable for what I'm trying to do with it but it's a shelf bracket like come on it's not like 
it's not life dependent and i did i did give it a lot more force for the simulation than it's actually going to carry so this in full size twice the size is going to carry 10 full folders full of documents yeah that's theoretically that's yeah um this is something i gotta say at this point the load you are putting on the model in fusion 360 doesn't change the results. So if you put one Newton on there or a hundred thousand Newtons on there, the what? result will always be the same because you are defining the infill or sorry, the uh, material ratio that will be kept. A topology optimization always, always, always requires the recalculation or the verification of your design because oh. yeah, if, okay. if you have multiple load cases, the amount of load you have in each load case or the the ratio between the different load cases they play a role but if you do a topology optimization with only one load you can apply one newton on there or one giga newton the result will always be the same the result only differs due to boundary constraints and especially the material ratio you are defining so Keep right. that in mind. That's <laughs> the, the, the so the thing I saw in Fusion Three Sixty is you know you get that nice colorful image, yep. which of course people like yep. because it's colorful and you think you've, you've actually simulated stuff. <laughs> um, is that the color scale is on criticality, which it calls it. Yeah. So it, it seems to optimize to fifty percent criticality, which I kind of tend to read as a safety factor of two. Yeah. Nah. I don't know. There is a separate material reduction ratio given, which in these cases I think was around 31%, mm-hmm. um, which I didn't actually define anywhere. So it always seems to to optimize to 50% criticality. So if any of you listening or watching know what Fusion 360 is actually doing, uh, let us know because it would actually be be good fun to to actually know what, okay. what the hell is happening here. Yeah, just just pay attention because as I said, uh, this is one of the problems right. with, uh, with topology optimization. You always need the ver- verification of your design because usually you are defining a load case. You optimize for, well, you minimize the compliance of the model, which is maximizing yeah. the stiffness. And, well, at a given material ratio. This is the setup which 99% of the, uh, of the models run. There are, some, um, there are some tools and codes where you can also include a, um, a stress safety factor or something like that. But that usually gives you inconclusive results. So that's only rarely okay. working. So, yeah. All right. Um, I guess I'll, I'll I'll just try it out. I'll give it another run with less force on here, yeah. and we'll see if that actually changes anything. Let let me know, and maybe even destroy one. I I mean, these were specifically printed to to yeah. try and to that, destroy. Does it ho- um, does it hold a full tom? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I, I, they feel very rigid. Yeah. But I don't think I'll actually. I don't know. Maybe is it currently PLA? That you've been using? That's all PLA, all yeah. PLA. Um, because why? PLA is, is plenty strong. Yeah. And yeah. Easy to print for these like that. <laughs> I, I don't need anything else for these. And maybe also just one last thing before you continue. <clears throat> Topology optimization does not include things like um, a buckling constraint. So you need to do oh, a verification okay. for um, stresses but also for buckling because yeah. topology optimization can sometimes give you really slender structures 
but these slender structures are not sized for buckling. And okay. buckling, especially with these slender structures, is usually the failure mode that you're having. Give it a try. Okay. I might... Oh, yeah, well, this this small part yeah. down here, I've, I've been looking yeah. at and was like, ah, you know... You know, maybe, maybe mm -hmm. this this is gonna kink inwards yeah. right there. I actually want to do something like that in the next couple of weeks because coming to the the next topic, I I can finally reveal it. But I got a kind of expensive three D scanner slash uh, yeah cool measuring device, which was provided by Gom, one of the like market leaders of optical. Uh, scanning or optical how do you say right uh metrology uh right. they got me one of their 3d scanners for a couple of weeks uh with which i can play around and you can't only for for you as a as a youtuber as a yeah for me as a youtuber so okay. they have seen my was my my diy tensile testing machine video where i also talk about right. how you can use um a camera and uh put a couple of points on your model and calculate the strain with these points and this is something yeah. which is done or which can be done with one of their systems and they just reached out to me and said hey uh don't you really don't you want to not really work with us together but we really find it cool what you're doing and if you're interested we can get you one of our equipments for a couple of weeks and you can play around if you like it you can do something with it but no worries um we don't force you to anything. I have met them at the control exposition a couple of months ago. And yeah, it finally arrived mid this week. It's a kind of small 3D scanner, kind of similar to the size as I think your Shining 3D. Uh, yeah, 3D so that's, that's about the size of a, of a Kinect. Yeah. Well, well no, nah, it, mine is like the size of a small um, projector um Thingy. Okay. Um, yeah. but it's it's kind of compact it has a well it has fixed lenses in there so the measuring volume is the same and it's yeah we'll we'll see how it works out i didn't really work with it so, so far that much but this is something i want to do next week and the thing is you can't only do 3d scanning with this device uh, this thing has two cameras in there so you have a stereo camera right. a calibrated stereo camera and you can just spray parts with a uh, with a like dot pattern. So just take a spray can from far away and put tiny dots on your on your part. Yeah, I actually got some some specific uh, spray for that. Yeah, just these days. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so the thing is, then you can film your test with this camera slash three uh, D scanner, and. After that, or even live, um, it will show you the stresses in, or not the stresses, Ooh. the strains in your part, and this is really, really cool. And how how detailed is that? So can you just take a, a part like this, bend it with your hands, or does it have to be mounted? Or what's the what's the, the constraints? On uh, that? It just needs to be in a measuring volume, and that's pretty cool because wow, you can um, well. Usually things like these are done with strain gauges where you, if, if you have yeah. a test, you put strain gauges at different positions and you get the strain at this location during the test. But um, this technology, which is called um, image correlation, gives you the, the possibility to really take a look at the strains in your whole part. 
And that is so cool. And the thing is, um, you can do that with the 3D scanner, but the 3D scanner is only, uh, is only uh, able to do it at a frame rate of 5 hertz. But they have dedicated systems for that, which even go up to like a thousand hertz or something like that. So you can do really highly dynamic tests and get the yeah. strains during this test. And this is so cool for me as an engineer, because <laughs> before I had to put strain gauges on my part. And now I can just like film the testing procedure and get strains on the whole part. And then maybe even take these results and correlate them with my finite element model in order to be sure that my analysis I did beforehand is right. And then I can, well, in the future, use this finite element model to, well, uh, to uh, take a look at stresses at other locations, which I'm maybe not even able to, to take a look at with that camera system. Yeah. And this is something really cool. I'm really looking forward to do that. And I thought about a couple of applications or parts where I could do something like that. One is my test hook where I also have, I think already a video on Twitter where I did it because you can also use this technology with just like your standard camera and their software, which is available for free. Ooh, yeah, that is nice. Um, that is really nice. Um, their software, so the free version only gives you the possibility to um, do it in two dimensions. So also your load case needs to be two-dimensional. Yeah. Uh, but if you have one of their scanners or if you have one of their even more advanced um, yeah, camera systems, which are especially for that application, you can do that in three, three dimensions and they even have high-speed cameras for that. And that is so cool. And since I tested Joel's uh, filament drag design thing also yep. quite a while ago, I thought about this would also be really interesting to put one of these scanners uh, or to put these scanners on one of these parts, destroy them and really take a look during the testing. Where do we have stress concentrations? Where does the failure happen? And if if um, it and the question and in order to answer the question, is it a Mm, like static failure of the parts, so where the stresses were just too high, or if you have a buckling failure. And this can also all be done with that camera. And I have that for the next uh, six weeks until I get on my summer vacation. So I really need to use it as much as nice. possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, make, make good use of it. I mean, the, the image I've, I've been having in my head for this entire time was like, you know, you have a, a car crash test uh, mm -hmm. and you basically point that thing at the collision area and you get mm -hmm. a real time whereas uh, you know a thousand frames is, is a lot mm -hmm. um you get a slow motion um mm -hmm. of you know how each individual part failed mm -hmm. that is really cool that's really fascinating so as i said i haven't been trying it out for that application so far but i know that it works and as i said i need to find a couple of applications and i really want to do a video about that um not just to say this is a cool technique, but if you have, you can even do that with kind of your phone camera. Um, if you have an application in that direction, you know that your load case, case is kind of two-dimensional. Yeah. You can use the software and do this um, image correlation there and take a look at the stresses and things like these. It's, it's really, really cool. It's a cool technology. Yeah, but it's also a 3D scanner. It's also it, it feels like that's just a, <laughs> oh yeah, but it it also does that. But no, it's it's primarily primarily a 3D scanner, uh, which is really cool because I wanted to have one for quite a while. 
this is not mine now because it's pretty expensive, uh, but I can use it for the next couple of weeks. And I really want to take a look at things like what amount of warping do you have if you if you kneel peel a parts because oh, yeah. of course you can do really simple parts and take some measurements but how is your whole part affected by it um things like how precise are 3d printers in general and things like these so it's yeah. it's really really interesting i want to just do a couple of things in that direction and uh, i hope i can yeah capture a lot of stuff before i send the thing back and maybe then afterwards release a couple of videos in this direction sure, which is really sure. cool so i'm really really happy <laughs> to have that device i'm so pleased that they gave me that possibility it's nothing sponsored they just uh, they just said okay we find cool what you're doing you can have one of our scanners for a, a bit of time if you do something with it yay that's fine uh if not that's also good as well yeah pro, <laughs> pro level hardware is always you know such fun to play with yeah it's great and well the software is really nice it's not like uh, i think well you've been using the einscan a lot it's sometimes a bit hard to use sometimes a bit slow but this is just yeah. this is just prosumer this is just commercial software which is really yeah. expensive usually pro level stuff is nice so is, is that is that the the film and testing again topic uh no film and testing again is uh is also something else i i didn't do for quite a while so the last kind of filament test was testing some resin yeah was was testing this tough resin uh just around right. christmas but i haven't been doing something like that in this direction for quite a while and i thought it it's finally time to do something again and I also posted a picture just a couple of hours ago where uh, the filament I'm currently testing actually <laughs> ruined my my fixtures. Yeah, I saw that. I thought, I mean, it's a 3D printed part that you posted that was destroyed, but yeah. that was actually not the part that was supposed to break. No, this was my fixture I usually okay. use uh, to kind of hold my layer adhesion samples. And the layer adhesion with... Uh, it's actually the Polymaker PC Max, which I'm finally testing. Like maybe right. like ugh, many see it as the, the the king of filaments. I have been doing a bit with it in the past, but never really got around to do a proper filament test. But um, yeah, working with it for the last couple of days was really, really nice. And the thing... The reason why I wanted to talk about that was, um, so I did my pre-tests. I did um, 3D Maker Noobs, like temperature test setting test towers, which I usually use during my filament tests. And Polymaker is actually recommending to print the material without any part cooling fan. Which makes sense for polycarbonate, yeah. Which makes sense for polycarbonate. Yeah. But I still ran one of the test towers with... No fan, 15% fan, 30% fan, 15, 50% fan, and 100% fan setting. And the thing was, um, no fan, you were able to see that the print quality was, wasn't just 100% perfect. It wasn't 100% perfect. But already with like 15% fan, it got way better. Hmm. So I thought about... How how sh how should I actually proceed? Because the thing is, if you use that material, you use you're usually using it for mechanical parts. Yeah, 
and I ask myself how um, how different are actually the strength results, especially layer adhesion, if I just use a tiny amount of fan and maybe increase temperatures a little bit instead of using lower temperatures and printing with no fan. So what I did, I printed test samples at 250 degrees Celsius without any fan, which also looked kind of nice. Then 270 degrees Celsius, which is kind of the optimal printing temperature for that material. And then 270 degrees with 15% fan turned on. So my question was, is, is the 250 degrees Celsius part stronger or weaker than the 270 degrees part with just a little bit of cooling. And the thing is, the effect is pretty is pretty big. So even at 270 degrees Celsius, if you just add a tiny bit of part cooling, your strength or your layer adhesion will be like 20 or 30, 30% lower. Yeah. And this is not even the, well, 100% fan I usually use for PLA parts. Yeah, it's, I mean, but, but that... You're saying, okay, uh, strength dropped considerably, but it looked so much better um, mm-hmm. print quality-wise. And that's, that's also been something that I've been struggling with my film and testing is, you know, where how do you print your stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, what I usually ended up doing is printing it the way the manufacturer recommends. Yeah, um, They should know best. Um, but there's always that, that asterisk that I had to mm-hmm. pretty much every single film and test is, okay, you can choose, use more fan for cleaner mm-hmm. prints, but for weaker prints or print hotter and use mm. less fan mm. for stronger parts. That's, that's gotta be something that that's always a scale on, yeah. uh, on, on how strong material is. Yeah. It's not like a single value. Yeah. So what, what, what are you going to end up doing there? So the thing was 250 degrees Celsius nozzle looked already way better than 270 degrees Celsius. Um, and 250 degrees without fan looked kind of similar to 270 degrees with fan. And my question was, which is better? So I will now probably use no fan at all and print at 250 degrees Celsius. And the thing also was that the strength between 250 degrees Celsius and 270 degree, uh, degrees Celsius was kind of the same, which is cool. So Both I don't no have... Fan. Both no fan, yeah, exactly. So the takeaway for me is that I think it will be kind of an interesting investigation in the future to test the influence of part cooling on layer adhesion for a couple of materials. And so part cooling usually decreases layer adhesion and temperature increases layer adhesion. So is there a sweet spot for PETG or PLA in terms of maybe printing a little bit cooler, but also with less fan or printing hotter with more fan? So where is the sweet spot of uh, print quality and layer adhesion? Yeah, you may end up with a curve, obviously. Um, Parito, yeah. Where, where there's no yeah. like one definitive yeah. spot where both are at mm-hmm. their maximum. Yeah. Um, and it's probably going to be pretty specific for that one single filament, but I'm, I'm thinking you can then, then take that curve, measure two data points for any other filament and mm-hmm. match that to that curve and kind of uh, you exactly. know, assess, okay, I'm, I'm here, I'm here, and I actually want to be there yeah. uh, when it comes to my settings. I think it's also yeah. just good for... Uh, the understanding of people uh, that they know how much part cooling could actually influence the strength of their parts. And if they have specific application where 
part strength is way more important than the look of the parts that they should maybe think about if these parts can actually pr be printed without fan or way less fan than well than the standard parameter they are using because usually printing parameters or profiles as many uh, call them have the fan turned on all the way because that gives you usually the nicest parts yeah yeah, most most people test for quality because that's you can yeah. test that with your eyes yeah. actually. Um, but strength is something that testing it objectively is is kind of hard. Yeah. Doing it repeatedly yeah. uh, or repeatably. The the other thing, of course, that influences strength versus looks is stuff like uh, print speeds and mm. uh, extrusion multipliers in particular. Oh yes, um, I am thinking about. Getting one of these like DOE design of experiment softwares and really make a big DOE how to find the perfect printing parameter. So you're basically just doing machine learning at that point. Uh, it's not really machine learning; it's statistics in the or, background. Well, yeah, but yeah, it's it's what people tend yeah. to call machine learning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the software will suggest different combinations of all the parameters you put in there. Yeah. And depending on the change of the output, so for example, in my um, in my case, strength or looks, um, it can then predict, so interpolate or extrapolate between these points in order to find the sweet spot lo you're looking for. Yep. And this can be pretty complex, especially if you're doing something like a full factorial design, which um, kind of blows up every design of experiments analysis heavily but if you use these um, software tools properly they can help you tremendously to get an understanding of for example the strength of a part depending on different parameters printing parameters with only like 20 samples or something like that and this is yeah. this is pretty cool and i have seen that done in the past and i would really like to do that in the future because i think it's an interesting topic especially for also other engineers because this is a tool and a, an approach you can use for so many different things and you just need to know how to apply it. Yeah. Um, I guess if if uh, people listening don't really know what what that entire thing uh, comes down to is maybe if you've, if you've seen like car engine maps, um, it's basically that where you have, you know, a few outputs um, that you want to control and you have a few inputs that you can measure and you want to find the optimum there you, you don't just have like a two-dimensional graph for okay this is the input uh, that i or this is what i can measure and this is what i should do it then becomes two-dimensional where you have like those those nice colorful maps then you have three-dimensional mm -hmm. which is that and it's 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 past three-dimensional it's pretty mm -hmm. hard to make sense of it mm -hmm. um but like the, the doe software mm -hmm. um helps you find like specific spots in that mm. space um, yeah. essentially yeah. to test for and then can predict the rest yeah. right yeah if if anyone is interested in that direction uh take a look at minitab which is one of the tools we use at work for that um for that purpose it's a commercial product uh it's pretty expensive but if you have problems in like a company it can help you tremendously to figure out how things work and find the optimal the optimum way more efficiently there are three things also around the programming language 
R, I think, is also R. R. <laughs> <laughs> it's also specifically designed to do um, design of experiments and statistics and things like these, but uh, you don't have a nice goo, a nice wizard, or things like that, which makes it right. way more usable if you don't have a degree in statistics. <laughs> yeah. All right. Should we start moving on to the new section? Yes, we can. Let's let's skip one, two topics and save them for the next time. Yes. Uh, uh, new. So today is Sunday, July 14th. And, and I think the thing that's blowing up on, on Twitter, or at least the thing that I'm, I'm really getting excited about, is uh, 3D Maker Noob has puppies. <laughs> <laughs> His dog Bella had six puppies this morning. They're so all... you... Yeah, you Healthy. talked to him at Maker Fair. Yeah, he he did he he also adopted one of uh, he adopted a dog. Yeah, I yeah. Think. Also, Bella, my dog's also okay. called Bella. They're, they're pretty similar size, uh, but his Bella is not even a year old. Okay, I think. And apparently, he got her already pregnant, but didn't know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, um, the you know, dogs are only pregnant for two months. Uh, okay. so it, it doesn't take a whole whole long time um for the puppies to actually pop out but um you know he's he's you know now proud owner proud doggy daddy of uh, seven dogs in total <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna uh, be really interesting well a good thing for him that he is also now doing like youtube full-time and is at home most of the time <laughs> yeah um i think his pin post on twitter is actually hey if you actually want to hire me for 3d printing stuff you, you can you can do that yeah and i've talked to him maybe maybe doing some script writing of, of stuff we we both tested um maybe maybe that can kind of ease the transition for him yeah um but yeah it's, it's good to see more people move full-time or, or <laughs> move full-time towards what they love doing and you've you've been kind of inching towards that too. Right? Yeah. I'm I'm a, I'm a part time YouTuber now, just working yeah. for four days a week. But well, your, you're doing one on day YouTube in four days. Like or, well, I do, I do three days YouTube and four days say, normal week work. Seven days. <laughs> yeah. There, there isn't not really that much like spare time at the moment, which is something I really miss from time to time and stressing me out. But um, yeah, you just. Well, I, I need to produce stuff. I need to get videos out. And uh, since my videos uh, take a lot of time, yeah, I kind of work quite a lot at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, but you, you mentioned, I don't know if you, if, while we were recording or before that, you're going to have a summer vacation, so you're actually going to take time off, right? Yes. So in not, not even five weeks, uh, we'll be flying to Japan for 20 Ooh. days something like that yeah i've been in asia f a couple of times before so like the standard thailand i've been to vietnam i've been to singapore but i've never been to japan and i mm, well i kind of fell in love with sushi a couple of well like one or two years ago and um japan is kind of an interesting country and it's getting more and more touristic over the last couple of years also because the yen is not worth that much anymore so um it's not that expensive anymore to go to, to japan it's still kind of expensive but it's more affordable than it used to be 
yeah and i'm really looking forward to just to get a glimpse of the culture there um i think it's crazy there uh being in one of these big cities i'm usually not a really a big city guy but i loved new york when we were there like two years ago or something like that it's 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 a great city and i don't know tokyo we'll see it's gonna be hot i think yeah yeah cities in general i i think that they're nice to visit but uh wouldn't, wouldn't want to live in one <laughs> yeah yeah you're right yeah and uh, asia is, is still like something that i haven't seen seriously you know, I, I still need to go uh, I don't know, taiwan uh, hong kong area is i think mm-hmm. really interesting especially in, in in the world that we live in yeah uh, in, in our kind of filter bubble um hong kong Shenzhen, that, that entire area um but yeah I always enjoyed it there. So I was in Thailand 12 years ago, I think. It's now, I think, something where you shouldn't really go because it's just too crowded. Vietnam was uh, five years ago. And the cool thing there was that we were traveling with a real Vietnamese guy. So a co-student of mine or a colleague of mine. Uh, And the nice thing about that is that you get a a hold of the culture in an, in a whole different way because you don't get rid, ripped off uh, during taxi <laughs> rides uh you get really authentic food there you live with the families it was such a a, a great um a great experience being there oh yeah well, yeah that, you, you, that, you gotta go to asia once yeah when you know when when I'm when I'm older and I have some time, <laughs> yeah. that's what we always say, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, another point in the news section um, is well, I I <laughs> phrased it in a way: Why have resin resin printers become so popular during? And you you put popular in air quotes, actually. Yeah, because in, in quotes, in quotes. It's not air quotes when it's written yeah. down, right? I yeah, I put. <laughs> popular in quote marks because popular in the way that manufacturers are pushing a lot of really cheap resin printers on the market during the last couple of months and during the last weeks if you are following facebook or youtube uh, you've seen reviews of the elgu mars the uh what's the name of the printer that joe's also um testing from the polish guys the zortrax is it the zortrax, the zortrax yeah what's yeah. it called uh not the photon yeah it? no the it's fo- not the photon, photon is a well, different one um uh, yeah. I, I just have the impression that resin printers are kind of the new hot thing the new hot thing and i don't really understand why what what do you mean like in general why are they so perceived popular Mm. or why now well because because resin printers have been around for for a while for many years uh maybe slightly differently built with you know the dlp projector Mm. but well they have been around yeah they have been more expensive for the past so um How's your your uh, DLP printer called or, or MSLA? The, the, the one how duplicator. The one how duplicator. This thing is five to seven hundred bucks, so it's quite expensive. That, yeah. uh, but the new ones, they are they're starting at two hundred bucks. 
Yeah, the 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 Mars is somewhere like two twenty nine or something, oh. plus shipping and taxes and, and inputs and all that, of yeah. course. But uh, the one of the cheapest ways to get into three D printing, other than you know an Ender three or an Ender eight, which I don't think, but yeah, um, <laughs> is I mean, I think it's it's a it's a few things kind of coming together. Formlabs have have managed to to make resin printing usable and and accepted as a as like a trusted source of manufacturing stuff yeah um prusa of course have built up some hype with the sl1 um cheap resin printers have kind of always been around but now also with with uh, that entire ecosystem of well what the software is going to be and and how you know the machine itself works kind of maturing um that's playing into it and also the 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 printers we're seeing now, I think the the Mars as well, are all LCD printers, so mm. MSLA, um, as you would call it, which is not the old. You have a DOP array that shines light onto a vat, but you actually have a phone LCD, a literal phone mm. screen, on the bottom of a vat that then blocks UV light. And mm. phone screens have just become really ubiquitous and and cheap and easy to address um, outside of of actual phones. Mm. So I think that those are all things that just come together right now and, yeah. and make up the, the fact that, you know, uh, resin printers mm. are, are just super cheap. And it's an ecosystem that is not that new anymore mm. where you're not going to be able to find resin or replacement uh, FEP sheets or, or all, you know, the, the consumables. It's mm. just really readily available now. Mm. And that's, in on the one hand, a really nice thing because mm, resin printing has its upsides but i am still not a huge fan of it i see it good for specific applications where you want to have high details and things like these but it's in my opinion just way more dangerous and uh well dangerous for your health than um fdm 3d printing just due to the resins being really nasty and i don't know if this is always addressed in a proper way it and is people. really addressed in a proper way, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I think I also talked about this with uh, Joel and Joe on the on the last episode, mm. kind of why we have FDM printers uh, as the most popular standard and not SLA or resin printers, um, and we kind of settled into where I pointed out that uh, well, the waste you're getting with FDM is just like little cold chunks of, of filament that you know fly around like mm. a filament. Yeah hairs essentially that, that are going to be around uh with resin it's literally sticky toxic uncured resin that gets everywhere um and i even and, see people pouring that down a drain Ooh, yeah no that's that's a big no-no how, how do, do you get rid of that stuff so there are some things which are just not as nice to handle as with fdm 3d printing so yeah, so I, th I think it's nice that they are becoming more affordable, but I see kind of a danger for the people that are using that and also kind of a danger for the environment because, yeah, the stuff is kind of nasty. Yeah, um, and you have to keep in mind, like, even the, the washed, early, the, the um, isopropyl alcohol that you may use to wash your resin parts that is then also contaminated you can't mm. just pour that down the drain um, yeah. i guess let the isopropyl evaporate and then let the resin cure and then it's in a state where it can be somewhat disposed but would you throw that into your your waste into the the energetically uh 
what's it called? Energetisch verwertete, uh, also the stuff that gets burned for energy. <laughs> Can you actually burn resin parts cleanly? Or uh, it's just, <sighs> yeah, you know, it's it's a whole kind of Pandora's box that you're opening up, yeah, uh, with resins. So we are both, I think, FDM aficionados. So I don't it's, see it's myself. Like it's, it's good enough, right? It does. Yeah. It's, it does the job. The th it you know resin for me is kind of like like these brackets. They really look nice. They look cool, mm. but in essence, they're not you know not necessarily better than what we have. <laughs> yeah, you don't need them. Yeah. But again, th yeah. that's that's our viewpoint mm. and uh, the. Uh, the SLA printers certainly have their applications in yeah. high detail and, and mm -hmm. you know very clean prints. Yeah. So you have a short story to tell about the Elgu Mars. Uh, well, it's, or it's just not... an, an interesting thing. Yeah. So El Elgu, Elgu Mars, they are at Repra Pro on Twitter. Um, and if you can know the history of the Repra Pro name, that used to be Adrian Boyer's um business essentially um so the his business of well selling 3d printers um the the fisher delta comes to mind that used to be repra pro and that business essentially got or eventually got sold to a a chinese brand um which i guess is now elgu so yeah the the elgu mars I guess kind of is is grown out of Adrian Boyer's work. I don't. I mean, he's not involved in the in the business anymore, I believe. But um, it kind of kind of came out of that. Yeah. So just just on the on the background of of the company, kind of. All right. Uh, the next thing which has been on Twitter for the last couple of weeks is. If you guys know the like fabric 3D printing or printing parts on on meshes, this is something which David Shorey, yeah. I think, yeah, from Shorey Design, is doing quite a lot. And I actually met him at Murph. Yes, and he gave me something which is somewhere back there, and he's doing pretty cool things. So he has been doing lots with uh, like. Um, yeah, printing things on like meshes on, on mosquito meshes and making them flexible. But he has been starting with printing directly on diffraction grading sheets. sheets yeah. So diffraction grading <laughs> sheets are used to kind of what are they used for? Split up light into it, it's kind of working like a prism. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you might know them from like physics class where you can generate interference patterns with them. Ah, yeah. Uh, where you can demonstrate uh, constructive and, and mm. destructive interference and you can do that stuff. But I don't know where they're actually used in, mm. in like products or, or science stuff. So these diffraction grading sheets are thin sheets of plastic which have a microstructure on there. And I first learned about those when I watched one of these... Uh, how to make your own gecko tape videos on YouTube where what? some guy... Oh. So gecko tape is the thing that kind of sticks to everything but it's not using a glue. It's just using like inter not intermolecular but kind of like 
right, right. it's it's not an adhesive yeah, it's, it's just not an adhesive it's just sticks. essentially mechanic or, yeah. or just like geckos can stick to your walls and roofs and something like that um without having like a slimy thing on their feet and um so this guy was pouring silicone on diffraction grading sheets which then left this diffraction grading pattern which is really just a, a very very tiny structure on these on the silicone and then kind of worked in a way as as gecko tape but um yeah david is now printing on these diffraction grading sheets and it is just amazing to see that if you take a look at the first layer or if you take a look at the back of your print that you get these um how do you say these rainbow colors so, yeah and, it's it's like an oil slick kind yeah. of reflective shiny surface yeah. um and yeah it, it's kind of the, the opposite of what uh, what Prusha are doing with her structured sheets um yeah. we want like a, a rough surface it's it's actually really glossy mm. looking surface but it has that rainbow effect to it mm. there's a word for it yeah I guess it's the fraction. <laughs> <laughs> so if you, if you guys uh, yeah. are interested in what he's doing, uh, check his Twitter account. It's at uh, Shory Design. Shory Designs. Uh, really impressive to see. Yeah, and I guess something you can you can do at home. Those sheets are, I guess, available. Yeah, they're available. Do, do you know if they're glass or if they're like a, a polyester or something? They are polymer sheets. They're not glass. Okay. I think maybe the the mold that they're using has also this really tiny structure on there. I don't know how it's done, but it's I think actually even the guy that did this DIY gecko tape had um scanning electron microscope pictures of how these diffraction grading sheets look like and it's just like lots of small prisms next to each other but in the right. nanometer scale. Yeah, I mean, if if you get the rainbow effect, I guess you would need to be somewhere in the same uh, ballpark size-wise as light. So somewhere in the, you know, half a micrometer, yeah. uh, 500 nanometer kind of range. Yeah. Which is which is actually tiny. Yeah, it's really tiny. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah, but it's still impressive to see that that actually transfers to, to 3D printed parts mm -hmm. to just, you know, smearing a, a polymer goop mm -hmm. over it uh, at that scale. It looks yeah. like you're, you're literally just taking a, a big old <laughs> goopy thing. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I wasn't aware that um, the normal polymers we use for 3D printing are kind of that fine that they can like just make a perfect cast of that structure. I thought yeah. silicone or something which is going into that direction where um, you can really make imprints of micrometer or even nanometer structures yeah well i guess the like the half micrometer scale isn't like compared to how large a molecule of, of yeah, PLAs right. and stuff is it probably isn't isn't that small but yeah. yeah nice stuff should we move on to the topic of the week yes which is something that you actually don't have but i do um <laughs> yeah just just following up on the on the ilkrone uh Wattak Flex Tilt Head 3D, um, which uh, I, I did make a video on, and it's a camera head that you partially get to print at home. And I don't know if if Ilkron actually see it as a as a real business thing, uh, or if it's just a marketing stunt uh, selling that for cheap. But compared to the 
off the shelf they, they do have an off the shelf aluminum machine version uh which is 149 euros they're selling the kit for the diy version for 29 euros mm-hmm. so one fifth of that price and the idea is you, you you get all the parts you can't really make at home um or can't 3d print at home as a nicely made kit and you print like the bulk of the parts um the, the literally bulky parts that don't need any sort of precision or any sort of uh well specific material properties mm-hmm. to them so that's something that i don't think any other manufacturer has done or any sort of like that any any well-known big manufacturer because elektronia are, are kind of a premium camera accessory they make sliders for for hundreds of dollars they make uh you know innovative camera heads like that and and, and those sort of things but all very high uh quality well-made mm-hmm. stuff I don't think anyone else has has done it that way. And the question is going to be, is that actually something that we're going to be seeing more of, um, of the idea that you can make spare parts at home, you can essentially print the product at home with just a few augmented parts. So, yeah, I mean, the, the one other thing that I know is that, I don't know if that's still a thing, but some manufacturers tried to have like a, a bit of a, of a parts library online mm-hmm. um, when it comes to like washing machine dials or, or yeah. small stuff like that. It's I don't an, know, have, have, have you seen anything like that? I think I've seen already something like that, but I can't really remember. Well, 3D printer kits from time to time. <laughs> well, yeah, where you have the printed parts but yeah this is this is still in the same regime um i also find it really interesting what they're doing especially in terms of uh, not, it's warranty is not the right word but who is to play who is to blame if you drop your 1500 euro camera because you printed the parts in the wrong way yeah. or something like that well they they do kind of um they do insure themselves against that by saying okay we have approved printers like the automaker s5 and uh the automaker 3 and the zx those are the printers that we actually approve mm. um we know we're going to get a good result and please print it 90 to 100 percent infill mm. and then they rate the entire head for a two kilogram camera which is very very conservative mm. um like it's it's not nearly uh, to the point where it might snap or mm. where it might break. Um, if you put like 100 grams more on it, mm. you could probably put 20 kilograms on there. And the only thing that would happen is that the joints aren't tight enough that the camera would sag down. Mm. Essentially, you have your tripod, you have a camera on top of it, which is called... Mm. It would flop down. That's that's all what, that would happen. Because mm. the joints themselves are, are aluminum. Like those are not going to break. Yeah. So it's always going to stay attached to your tripod. Yeah, as I said, I think it's really nice, but there's always the problem with customer satisfaction. And you had this nice squirky noise and things like these. Um, if you provide these kids, especially if you are in like a more expensive market, it's hard for you to get everyone happy because not everyone has the proper materials, the proper printers and all of the things. So how is how is the reputation of the company affected by these kits if, th- if something is not working out? Because you can only do quality control of your 
the separate parts, but not the final product you're usually selling. And I think this is a problem. I th this could lead to the point that a couple of companies won't do that because they don't want to have their reputation being bad because people printed the parts in a wrong way. Um, I think it's nice, but I still would like to see it more in terms of replacement parts where you know they can fail and um, it's easier for people to just get a replacement there. Um, I don't know, what, what is your take on that? How do you think, um, do you think it's just a, a marketing gimmick of Edelkrone or do you think there's real, really a business case behind that? I mean, okay, so what are, what are the main costs for, for Edelkrone at, at manufacturing these parts? Um, it's going to be, or from for manufacturing these heads, um, it's going to be R&D. That's going to be a huge one because no. they, they don't have the volume to, to actually make up for it. And yeah, manufacturing itself, machine, those are all CNC machine parts that they're using. And then, of course, by weight, shipping. The heads are, are somewhat heavy, but you know, just the shipping is going to be minimal. So R&D and manufacturing. Manufacturing, really, they're, they're saving on it. Um, yeah. They're saving big on it because it's just it's a way less material that they're machining. But do they save um, 120 bucks? Say again? Uh, do they really save 120 bucks on machining? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> um, so manufacturing, yeah, slightly R and D. There's not less R and D involved into uh, in, mm. in an Ortag head than uh, in the regular one. Mm. But I guess they see it as okay. We've, we've already figured this thing out. Let's strip out a few parts. Mm. Um, and you know explore or, or, or um get into a market that we wouldn't be able to to get into with a more expensive head mm. so i don't know if it's actually a business case but it it, it it certainly is a marketing instrument yeah um on the topic of is it possibly going to damage a company's reputation um if if it doesn't work i think i think it's the company's task to actually make sure that it works, even if the print isn't yeah. is, isn't isn't perfect. Um, I'm not sure you can see that a whole lot in the uh, in the Edelkrone design, but I'm thinking like along the ways of okay, you have your aluminum parts that need to fit into the 3D printed parts, have some sort of a pattern like a, a Torx pattern or something, mm. um, where it really meshes with the uh, 3D printed part, even if it's not perfectly to size. Um, allow for some tolerance or allow your your machine parts to take up some tolerance from the 3d printed parts that that just needs to be part of, of mm. the design of both the machined and the 3d printed yeah. parts um but it's also on, on your on the topic of are these printed parts always going to work um just saying okay we'll just print replacement parts then but for replacement parts we have i think even stricter um requirements for tolerances because you're usually replacing an injector molded part with a 3d printed part yeah so that's i think it's it's easier to make a, a virgin product that is a, mm. a fab at home version versus just replacing some random part that may not even be designed for 3d printing with a 3d printed part down the road yeah, yeah, you're probably right there. And well, they they put uh, they put some thoughts into designing this head, or well, the the printable parts of this head, as far as I've seen from uh, what you've been telling in your video. 
Um, yeah. they're, they're so they very well designed yeah. for 3D printing. They ac- yeah, they specifically designed this for 3D printing. So this is a good thing. And they didn't just say, okay, here are the CAD files of the standard part, print them out. Um, they really tried to make sure that it's possible to be 3D printed. So if you have, if we would have more thought out products in this direction, it might be a really good thing if it makes them more affordable for us. But um, it just, it, it's not that simple. You need to put some more R&D and really, well, creating one of these parts. And I, I don't really know if they are making that much money with a 30 bucks 3D printed kit because I, if, I don't think if you think about making... how much where are they actually located are they Turkey Turkey okay but the cost for mass manufacturing of aluminum parts it's cheap it's really cheap so maybe the the standard parts that are delivered with like the 150 euro fully assembled version maybe there are 20 or 30 bucks bucks in the end I don't know I, I can't really judge because I don't really uh, know what the difference is. But the thing is that I, I think they are making a profit with the standard version, but um, I think the other one is just a gimmick at the moment. And if they really would, if you really want to make a, a business case of such out of such a thing, you need to charge a certain amount of money for the R&D for creating the other parts that are also on the standard version and and things like that yeah now okay the the thing that that I'm seeing here is the in the Ortec line I don't think it's intended to actually compete with their premium with their regular product yeah um I mean, I guess it, if if you've really printed it right, and I've I've seen some comments that say, okay, if you use uh, a nylon, just print the parts with a carbon fiber nylon, it doesn't squeak, yeah. it grips better, um, it it works better, but still, it's a three D printed product that you have to print and assemble yourself. Mm. If you're actually running a video production, you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna flinch at a at hundred fifty euro uh, tripod head. Nope. First of all, you wouldn't buy it; you would rent it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but also, it's uh, like. That, that that sort of money is nothing in a, in a big production so it's not gonna push their other products out mm. of out of you know the, the profitable markets yeah. um but maybe that they're, they're seeing a bit of a of a venue with uh the actual you know modifications that people mm. can do because i that was something that wasn't really clear with uh at the time that i that i recorded and scripted the video but um, I've clarified the license situation with Edelkrone and they're actually putting out the design files on a very liberal license. Uh, on Thingiverse, it's Creative Commons uh, attribution share alike. And they've also sent me their own Edelkrone uh, attribution license, I think it's called, which essentially is Creative Commons mm-hmm. uh, attribution share alike with, you know, in, in the spirit of the mm-hmm. license. So like i've like i've mentioned in the video i think it's it's that there's so many more possibilities on the end user side yeah. of just using that parts kit and and creating your own uh design with it yeah based on that on that on mm-hmm. the you know precision kit yeah. so yeah so you're it's, right it's probably opening a, a totally different market for people that wouldn't buy such a thing in the first place but they know now by the high quality parts in between that they need 
to uh, yeah then create something for their own application. Yeah, and, and it's maybe 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 even competing with Chinese knockoffs. I don't know. So the question is, if you would, if there is a Chinese knockoff that is fifty bucks for the standard aluminum version, or you can get, or a maker can get a Edelkrone three D printable version for thirty bucks. Maybe you could convince a couple of people to buy the genuine parts in between and then yeah. use their existing 3D printer to uh, print the rest. And they are still kind of saving something if you don't take uh, like working hours or your own, the worth of your own time yeah. into that uh, calculation. I mean, you can get like really simple knockoffs for 20 bucks, okay, which have like one less platform. So they're just a like one v platform i think so that takes away a bit of the functionality um and then you can get like a more expensive one which is still that two platform spacing mm. i think a different manufacturer mm. so yeah the, the, the ilkrona kit is kind of in that same price bracket mm. as the as the knockoffs um what was it what was gonna go with this <laughs> Well, anyways, <laughs> yes. so the yeah, so I I think the the the, the sharing and and modifying mm -hmm. these designs that's also something that just yep. gets the name Elikron out. Yeah. Um. If if there's actually a community growing that uses those parts, which now right now is a bit limited in what you can get, mm. um, to build camera rigs and to build you know heads and and, and kinematic mm. stuff for cameras, uh, or for other stuff, then then you know. Everyone's going to be using the, the Edelkrone parts. Yeah. Um, and that just gets the name out. Yeah. The thing which got me interested in when I watched your video was that you said that it's way lighter than the aluminum one. And I thought, yeah. okay, I'll be on holiday with maybe just a backpack uh, in a couple of weeks. Would this be something I'd rather take with me instead of the heavy aluminum version? I don't actually know what, what the use case for something like that is, but um, this could be the decision for me to buy one of these kits and uh, yeah, 3D print it out and take it with me on a trip if I would know for what I would use it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so the the head the, the use case for this specific head, yeah. I don't think it's... I make it very clear in the video, but there's a good video on uh, from Il Krone that kind of explains why you would buy this. Is you have their sliders, um, and with a slider, if you slide like along the axis of the slider, at some point you're gonna see the slider in the shot. So ah, that yeah. head just lets you prop up the camera, or it lets you extend the camera forward so it it slides mm. past the slider rail. Um, it's really a slider accessory. Okay. Um, in its core, you can use it, uh, you know, in, in place of a, of a ball head somewhere, but it's made for that. But yeah, uh, weight for traveling definitely is um, is a point. Now, the the, the thing that I, that I was going to say uh, just before, where I forgot was <laughs> what I was going to say is, um, why aren't Edelkrone printing these themselves? Why aren't they using 3D printing for manufacturing their, their heads? No. Um, is it because it's, it's not actually producing a product that they would be happy selling because they don't like the 3d printed look mm -hmm. i don't know or because there's other issues with consistency that they've run into mm -hmm. um or is it just not worth it for them to to run a 3d printer line to 
like in bulk manufacture these parts and then provide a kit for i don't know 39 bucks with the printed parts mm. that that's a really good question in my opinion it is aluminum machining is just horribly cheap so i don't think they really pay that much for the aluminum parts and the consistency of the product in the end and the quality of it and the usability of it and the rigidity of it and the durability of it is probably way better with the aluminum parts in comparison to 3D printed ones. The question maybe could also be uh, if they're not 3D printing them because of consistency or other things, um, might injection molding be a, a possibility to make a, a cheaper version? Right, yeah. Yeah, but of course, they need a bit of volume just to exactly. pay for the mold. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. Um, what, what's your opinion on that? Do you do you think it would be... Why or why do you think they are not printing these parts on their own? Yeah, I mean, so so, so what you can kind of see is that the, um, the rigidity of the entire head is, of course, not as good as the, the full aluminum version. Mm-hmm which kind of surprises no one because it's plastic. It's less rigid than a than an aluminum part. Um, robustness and, and just durability, I don't think is an issue because the, the printed parts are just so chunky. Um, you could drop the entire thing. You could run into it with, with other stuff. I don't think that that would be much of an issue. But just Edelkrone, as their brand, have always been a solid aluminum uh, brand. I, I, I used to have or I still have their old slider, which I've had for one and a half years or so it's just like it's a it's an aluminum brick mm. um their head one their their slider head is also an aluminum brick and then this shiny uh acrylic piece laid into for for looks but mm. they've they've always been about you know very well overbuilt feeling parts yeah, yeah this just well separates them for well from cheaper from cheaper versions they want to be this high high end um this high end brand and people are expecting that if they are buying that and if they don't want to get into the cheapo market um this is still a possibility to maybe get in another market but uh people don't expect the edelkrone quality if they are buying maybe the the 3d printed kit yeah Yeah. and I, i guess just just to put this into perspective like Video gear, cheap is relative, and expensive is relative. Like the uh, the prices that I'm mentioning, 150 bucks for uh, for the flex tilt yeah. head for the regular one. <sighs> you know, for a tripod head, that's in on for for video production for professional video production, that is nothing. Mm-hmm. Like paying a thousand bucks for a tripod head, that is that is considered like a, a production ready head. Mm-hmm. Um, or the slider that costs 600 bucks plus the 400 uh, bucks for the head. That is that is absolutely nothing when when you're looking at the big productions. No. But of course, for like the prosumer and smaller scale production, that is expensive, um, and that is considered premium equipment, especially compared to like the a much cheaper import alternatives. Yeah. Ah, but that that, that, that tripod, <laughs> the, the one that that MKBHD has with the one 
clamp do you, do you know that one where you have like the one clamp up top and just the legs just extend all the way oh uh, no ah oh, so good so good but way too expensive <laughs> so will yeah will you be using this one in the future if you also have the aluminum one um so the, the first thing i'm gonna have to solve is the squeaking issue because not only is it squeaking but it's it's only allowing you to like adjust the camera in really coarse increments mm. because you build up tension and then kick it yeah. releases stick, with a squeak. Stick slip effect. Slip stick, slip yeah. Stick, um, stick slip, slip stick. I, I never know which way around <laughs> it is. Um, so that that not only is an acoustic problem, which is of course what which generating that that sound, but also a, a usability issue where you can't really adjust the camera finely. Yeah. Which kind of makes it makes it pointless. The other thing uh, is also on the usability side. Um, I like to have my sliders on an angle. So mm. where a, a print kind of builds up, the camera rises along with it. Mm. And the flex tilt head doesn't allow you to tilt the camera. Okay. So it's always going to be parallel to the surface that it's riding on. Yeah. So your shot is always going to be crooked. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to have to find use cases for it. Um, in general, though, if that that's stick slip, issue wasn't there i would not have an issue using that over the aluminum version cool at all like i, I think i think if it's just as smooth i would use it um with with no regrets no no limitations cool because my, my cameras are relatively light <laughs> they, they don't touch that two camera uh, two kilogram limit uh, what's the gh5 actually i think it's like 736 grams okay <laughs> just don't put a tele lens on that yeah don't put that 10 to 25 <laughs> <laughs> which is now out but you can't buy okay it's like it's like a <laughs> because it's sold out or i don't think it's it's been it's been shipped to uh to resellers yet okay all right nice um i 725 grams 725 sorry. okay that, yeah that's pretty light plus lens <laughs> Yeah, so we're way lighter than, but yeah, it's the the product itself, the 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 Ortec Flex Tilt Head 3D by Edelkrone. Um, it's a viable product, I think, mm. if you're willing to put the time and the the printing into it. Of course, uh, that entire thing of okay, you can customize it, you can print it in your own color, you can use different filaments. Like there's going to be one filament type that works that doesn't squeak, um, which is probably going to be the nylons, the fiber reinforced stuff, mm. possibly. Um, color wise. Do you care about the color of your of your video equipment? Not really. Everything's black. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And showing up on on set or for a job with a turquoise tripod head. Uh, not sure how well that would go over, but yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm really seeing more potential in the actual geometry customization mm -hmm. that people can do, and they they do provide SolidWorks files and step files, mm -hmm. so you, you can actually modify them. It's it's not like they're just throwing out the STL files and going mm -hmm. like, okay, do with it whatever you want. Yeah. Now that's pretty nice for so the community because well, <laughs> there are certain applications where they probably didn't even think about before. If you have this swarm intelligence of so many people that are around and would like to use it, there might be some really cool use cases for the parts or it's just some customization um some customization work on fixing the issues it has at the moment like the squeaking and whatever yeah and i mean we've seen with 3d printers that that definitely works if there's a liberal license attached to it which the current parts do have yeah so yeah like i said I, I really respect them for taking this step and i think for them it's it's really 
it's it's a big experiment and a big mm. you know uh, venture into the void into you know the unknown yeah um i wish more companies would do that just to try it out i don't think it's a it's a huge risk for them um they've put the hours to design the part mm-hmm. and yeah i don't think it's it's chewing into their markets or into their their other products uh sales so yeah Again, I, I would really like to see more companies do that just for the sake of being able to slightly mod the parts and, and yeah. for having kind of that library of, okay, I need I need a friction joint. Oh, here's that. I need mm. a, a mount. Here's that part mm. that I can use. All right. Yeah. Do we have any questions? I'm looking at, the, at our notes and we do not have any questions, I think. And we are already one hour, 30 minutes in, so... <laughs> Yeah, you know that's what happens when we don't talk for a month. Yeah, <laughs> and we, we actually did... we skipped yeah. so many uh, points we also had on the list. You know, one one of the questions that that people had when I first or when I when I started my, my channel and was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this full time now because that's what I what I kind of have to do now is, hey, are you are you actually going to have enough topics? I was like, ah, you know, I think I think I'll be fine. Yeah, I think I'll be fine. And we had the same thought with this podcast, but yeah, so far we haven't run out of topics. No, so. we did not. All right, so I yeah. think that concludes it for today, doesn't it? Yeah. So thank you to Skillshare for <laughs> no, for sponsoring both our last videos, <laughs> um, but not this podcast. Not this podcast, yeah. Um, thank you all for watching or listening. Definitely. Where can people subscribe? Everywhere. Uh, we are in Spotify. We are in basically any podcast player. We are on iTunes. We are on YouTube. Um, Google Podcast. You have to download our episodes. You can't stream them. Them. I don't. Still don't know why, but that's the case. Something's going wrong there. Yeah. And it looks like something is going wrong with my microphone. So please excuse that if uh, my mic has been having some issues this episode. But thank you all for listening. Uh, Thank you all for watching. And we will catch you all in the next one. Yes. Thanks, Stefan. Thank you, Tom. Goodbye. Bye-bye.